Thank you for that, Marty. Pam, appreciate that so very much. And there are storms in life, aren't there? So many storms. And yet they will pass by as we trust the Lord and depend upon him. So wonderful. What a great promise. Thank you, Marty, for that song. John chapter 19. John chapter 19. We're really taking each of these passages in chapter 18 and 19 of the book of John. We're taking them in sections here as we work our way through the various phases of Jesus' trial. We've talked about the Jewish phase and the Roman phase, and we have now entered into part three of the Roman phase of Jesus' trial. Uh, I just, I'm overwhelmed sometimes as I read, as I study, as I prepare to think that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ would suffer so unjustly for us. And I hope that, I know this is not Easter season, this is not Christmas season, but I hope that we will remember that we will once again be full of gratitude and appreciation, that we will be renewed in our love for the Lord as we sing many hymns this morning on the theme of love, the love of God. May we be renewed in that love for God as we see how our Savior suffered for you and for me. We come to John 18, and we're, we just read in John 19, but let's back up just a little bit to John 18 and verse 39, where we concluded last week. In verse 39 of John 18, But ye have a custom, that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will ye therefore, that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. We are in the third part of this message in our larger series on the Gospel of John, as we've been working our way through the book of John. And I have entitled this message, which now has grown to three parts, to a third message, Christ Confronts Pilate. Yes, I know that Pilate is confronting Jesus. Jesus is on trial, but really, again, as we flip the script, as we've talked about the last couple of Sundays, it is really, in a sense, Pilate that is on trial. And Pilate is trying to extricate himself from this predicament. But he won't take the only true, real, effective way of escape. And that would be to submit to Christ as his Savior, to repent of his sins, to step down from his place of leadership, to not condemn an innocent man to death, but himself realize his own sin that condemns him before the truth, the Savior, and to turn from that sin and turn to Christ in saving faith. Pilate won't take that escape route, sadly. And so many people are like Pilate, as we talked about last week, as Pilate asked the question, what is truth? So many people are like Pilate. They find themselves in a predicament. They find themselves under conviction. They find themselves between a rock and a hard place. And the one true means of escape is to run to Jesus and to fall before him and repent of one's sins and turn to Christ in saving faith, but instead they go their own way. They find some other path that only leads to destruction. So we're faced with that reality. 
Pilate had sent Jesus to Herod, Herod Antipas, who was the Roman governor up in the northern part of Palestine, Galilee, the region that Jesus had had grown up in. And Pilate is looking for a way to get out from underneath this guilt to not be the one who's guilty of condemning Jesus to death. He is squirming under guilt and conviction and political pressure and all that was going on in Pilate's life between the Romans who were wanting and expecting him to govern Judea with authority and with skill to keep the Jews at peace and yet make sure he kept the Romans happy, and Pilate found himself caught betwixt and between as the crowd cries out for Jesus to be crucified, as the Sanhedrin has brought Jesus to Pilate and has made these false accusations. Pilate is struggling with what to do with Jesus. He learns that Herod, Antipas, is in Jerusalem, again for the Passover, as the Roman governors would often come and They would make sure that everybody knew that they were there and that they were the ones in charge and there would be some pomp and circumstance and there would be some ways in which, you know how it is with politicians, when they show up in town, they have to make a big to-do and they get the headlines. And this is back before all the 24-7 news networks, but believe me, people knew that Herod Antipas was in town and that Pilate was in town. And so Pilate learns that Herod Antipas is not that far away and he says... Let me send him to Herod. Herod is the governor of the region where Jesus grew up. there in Nazareth. Maybe he can deal with Jesus. So Jesus goes to Herod, and Herod is happy to speak to Jesus, to have Jesus appear before him. Now, John does not record the details of that phase of the trial where Jesus appears before Herod. By the inspiration of God, by the preservation of God's word, we can go to the other gospel accounts and we can read the details of Jesus' appearance before Herod. Specifically, Luke 23 in verses 6 through 12 give us the details. Herod Antipas treated Jesus horribly. Mocked him, ridiculed him. Remember, it was Herod Antipas who had put John the Baptist to death. Herodias had done her sensual dance, her provocative dance, and Herod Antipas, being the licentious, sensual pervert that he was, he fell for her sensuality, for her immorality, as weak men do. Can I put in a little plug there for us as men to be morally pure and to stand for what is right because Herod Antipas was a weak man. He fell for her sensuality, her provocative dance, and he said, I'll give you whatever you want. And what did she ask for? The head of John the Baptist on a platter. And he went ahead and ordered his execution. This is the Herod that Jesus is now appearing before. Jesus was mocked, was ridiculed as he appeared before Herod. Herod, in a mocking, in a scandalous way, even had a robe put on Jesus And then sent him back to Pilate. Herod Antipas said, I'm the governor of Galilee. I don't really have jurisdiction here. Of course, he didn't want to also be the one to order Jesus' death. So he then sends Jesus back to Pilate. 
In Luke 23, in verse 12, we read that Pilate and Herod Antipas became friends as a result of this interaction during Jesus' trial, where once they had been enemies. What did they become friends about? Their contempt for Jesus. Their affiliation during this unjust trial. Sad to say, what do we find oftentimes with rebels? Dr. Bob III used to remind us at college, he used to say, as we would begin a new semester, he would say, watch out, watch out, there's rebel radar. If you know what I mean. Isn't it interesting how everywhere you go, the kids, the adults, the rebels, they always seem to find one another. It's like somehow they send out these subliminal messages. Now you have social media. So now you have social media messages that stir up things sometimes behind the scenes. And then they show up at malls and they go at it. And they brawl in malls or in mall parking lots and various places, public places. And oftentimes it's because they have sent out messages in social media. But it's that rebel radar. And I watched it. I've watched it for years especially as a school principal and in the ministry I've watched as young people, as water will seek the lowest level, so rebels who have rebellious hearts will seek the lowest level. They'll find the other kids who are in rebellion who are seeking the lowest level as well. And it's amazing how they find cohorts. And you can often tell what a, a child, a, even an adult's heart attitude is by the type of people that they find themselves hanging out with. We had a great time in our men's Bible study yesterday talking about our acquaintances and our close friendships versus uh, our acquaintances and our responsibility to the saved as well as to the unsaved. What a wonderful time we had discussing that and studying that in our men's Bible study yesterday. But here's Pilate and here's Herod Antipas. What do they find in common? How are they friends? They're friends in their rebellion, in their contempt for Jesus Christ. How sad. So Herod, is, Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate, and then Pilate, as we just read there in verses 39 and 40, he tries to find a compromise. The first compromise, the first compromise is to try to appease the Jews by releasing a prisoner. Remember, it's Passover, and it was customary, as we understand from the historical record, from the historical context, it was customary, and from the Word of God, that during the Passover, that there be a prisoner who was released as kind of a, a, an act of pardon to appease the Jews. And usually, usually, there would be at least three names chosen. And these would be presented to the Sanhedrin. Which of these three? And of course, the Sanhedrin would probably pull the crowd, would get the public opinion. And they would, from those three, the Jews through the Sanhedrin would choose an individual, maybe someone who they felt was unjustly thrown into prison or tried or whatever the case may be. Oftentimes, it would be somebody who would re-enter public life and would be a help and a benefit to the Jewish community. Well, it was customary for them to do this, so Pilate sees this as his first opportunity to maybe compromise with the Jews. He senses the riot, the, the chaos, the mob that is building, that is forming, and he is trying to tamp down that chaos, that riot, that mob, 
Because if they get too riotous, if they begin to stir up too much controversy, then the Romans will look at Pilate and say, what are you doing, Pilate? You can't control the region of Judea. You're going to get demoted. You're going to get taken out. In the meantime, Pilate wants to appeal to the Jews because, again, he wants to make it look good for the Romans as well as be a friend to the Jews. So he's in this predicament. He's caught betwixt and between. His, uh, his idea of compromise, he's already tried to send Jesus away to Herod. Now he is going to offer a prisoner. Surely, in Pilate's mind, surely the Jews would pick Jesus. Surely they would want Jesus, who is innocent, who's done nothing wrong, who has been a, a man of compassion, who has healed the sick and raised the dead, who has taught the people and the common people, for the most part, have endeared themselves to Jesus. They love Jesus. It's the religious leaders. It's the hypocrites. It's the Sanhedrin. It's those in power who pull the levels of power. They are in seething hatred at a boiling point in their animosity towards Jesus. And Pilate thinks that if he can just appease the crowd by giving them Barabbas, surely, or giving them Jesus, excuse me, surely, they would not want Barabbas to be re-entered into public life. Surely they would choose Jesus over Barabbas. But we read here, verse 40, again, not this man, but Barabbas. It's just hard to believe, isn't it? They did not want Jesus to be released. Instead, they wanted the notorious criminal Barabbas Barabbas, we know from other passages such as Matthew 27, 16 and 17, Mark 15 and verse 7, Luke 23, 19 and verse 25. Barabbas was not just a robber, but he was a murderer. Now we have district attorneys all across the United States who are releasing criminals with long rap sheets. We have lots of DAs that are doing that. And we cry for justice. We see some of them becoming repeat offenders, many of them becoming re repeat offenders. We see the way that affects society. Here they are as a crowd, as religious leaders. Barabbas, in the irony of this, Barabbas, even by the rules of the Sanhedrin, by the Jewish religious law, the Mosaic law, Barabbas should be executed. He should be serving a death penalty and receive capital punishment by the Jews' own religious law. But Barabbas is just being held in prison. Obviously, the Sanhedrin had not called for his capital punishment, or if they had at some point, Maybe he hadn't been involved in religious circles. We don't know. But whatever the case may be, his life had been spared. And now a notorious criminal, a murderer and a robber, is being sent back into the public instead of the innocent, perfect God-man, Jesus Christ. The hearts of man are wicked. Pilate even knew, according to Matthew 27 and verse 18, Pilate even knew that they had handed Jesus over to him due to envy. Pilate knew that this man, that, that, that Jesus was innocent.
He could find no fault in him. He knew that they had ulterior motives. They had evil motives. And then on top of all this, in Matthew 27, in verse 19, Pilate's wife spoke up. Now, at least Pilate had enough sense to listen to his wife, right? Some stubborn men in politics and in power, they won't listen to their wives. At least to some degree, Pilate listened to his wife because Pilate's wife spoke up and she said, Let this man go. I have suffered many things in a dream because of this Jesus. Now, he listened to her up to that point. He did not release Jesus like he should have. So at that point, he did not listen, did not follow through with his wife's statement, her intuition, her dream that God had in his providence in that dispensation allowed her to have this nightmare, this dream, and it shook her so that she spoke up during this trial and said, Pilate, let this man go. I have suffered many things in a dream because of him. So Pilate now is even more fearful He is literally, in a sense, shaking in his boots. The crowd had been worked up into a frenzy. It was a mob mentality. He looks outside. He sees the mob. Remember, the Sanhedrin won't come into the praetorium. They won't violate that ceremonial law, even though they are violating the very moral law of God and condemning an innocent man, the God-man, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to death. They won't come into the praetorium. Pilate looks out, and he sees the crowd, and it's like they're frothing at the mouth. They're rabid in their hatred, and we know what happens when there's mob mentality in our culture. It breaks out into riots. And I'm not trying to get political here, but I remember in Indianapolis... On the nights of some riots in downtown Indy, and I don't know what they were like here in Lafayette, but I remember we had a friend who was a police officer, and he had told us earlier, he said, I have been told I have to stand down. I cannot interfere. And I remember for the first time in my life as an American citizen sitting in my house on the west side of Indianapolis and a tinge of fear going through my body as a father, as a husband in the security of my home on the west side of Indy, knowing that the police have been told to not enforce the law and let the rioters have their way. And thinking, what if it doesn't stop in downtown? What if it continues? What if it comes out into the suburbs? Am I going to have to defend my family? What am I going to have to do? What about our church and our school? How is this going to end? Where is it going to go next? We're having to, make, we're having to think those thoughts now. We never thought we would come to that point here in the United States. I hope tonight to share the four principles of our security team. I want to put them on the screen because I think they're so important for our church to see that we shared in the opening of our security team meeting yesterday. I want to share them with our church family because I think they're very important scriptural principles. But here's this mob, and we know what mobs can do. Rioters, chaos. And Pilate is in fear. He doesn't know what to do. He does know what to do. But in his flesh, in his political mind, in his political expediency, in his desire for power and to hold on to his position, he doesn't know what to do. He's caught between a rock and a hard place. This mob is expressing the depravity of man's heart. This mob is showing 
the depths to which man will go to try to remove his guilt, to try to punish the messenger of the truth or truth himself. The mob is showing what man will go to, what lengths he will go to, to ultimately reject God in his word. It's expressed in the mob, but it's also expressed in an individual, Pilate. So after what Pilate's wife said, hearing the cries of the multitude, and again, if I don't, I don't want to go on too much of a rabbit trail here, but if you've ever been in a place where you hear the crowd outside, the protesters outside, and you hear the banging, and you hear the chanting, and you hear some of the other activities that they are engaged in outside, that's what Pilate is experiencing to some degree as he's in the praetorium. As he hears his wife give him this message about the dream, and as he knows he has an innocent man before him, as he's trying to figure out what to do as he's offering Barabbas, or excuse me, as he's offering Jesus to the people instead of Barabbas. So what does Pilate do? Matthew chapter 27, verses 24 and 25 tell us what Pilate does. He goes to a laver of water, and he makes a symbolic gesture to try to absolve himself of guilt. He washes his hands. He mimics a Jewish washing ritual and then claimed that he was innocent of the blood of Jesus. What a farce. What a fraud. What a hypocritical move. That washing of the water... That symbolic gesture, it meant nothing. It was not going to absolve him of the guilt of Jesus should he follow through with the order to crucify this innocent man. But it reminds us of what man tries to do to absolve himself of the guilt of his sin. Does not man try to absolve himself of the guilt of his sin in so many different ways? For the religious, there are various forms of penance and confessions and rituals and good work doings and superstitions, all to try to absolve oneself, one's conscience, one's soul of the guilt of his or her sin. For most, it involves blame shifting like Pilate, excuse making, or redefining the terms. That's what we're really good at here in America is taking all the terms and trying to redefine them. And so somehow we're not guilty because, well, it doesn't mean that anymore. And I've, again, I've dealt with this with my own children. I've dealt with it as a child guilty before my own parents or before an authority. And I've dealt with this as a school principal where I ask a student a question and they give me an answer. And I know that they are not giving me the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I know that there's something that they're leaving out, or they're trying to redefine the terms. The one that I often would deal with was, the teacher yelled at me. So the blame was the teacher, right? The teacher was this maniacal, devilish-looking, evil individual that turned into the Tasmanian devil in the classroom and just yelled at you. And I would sometimes get a little elaborate with my illustrations to try to get the kids thinking. Oh, well, no, Pastor Brent, it it wasn't quite like that. 
Okay, so let's define the word yell. Did they scream at you? Well, no. Did they raise their voice? Well, maybe just a little bit. So what does yell mean? And then I would have to call their parents and explain, well, my child came home and said the teacher yelled at them, right? And then I would have to go back and have to educate the parents as well as the student. I learned real quick that yell means anytime the teacher disagrees with me in any way, shape, or form, or confronts me or corrects me in any way, shape, or form. That's what yell means. Redefining the terms so that the blame is on someone else. Oh, we're really good at that here in America. We've now even redefined terms like genocide and hate and love. And we could go on and on. Here we see man trying to excuse his sin, trying to absolve himself of the guilt of his sin. And we're washing ourselves many times with the same futile water. The same dirty water trying to absolve ourselves of the guilt of our sin. Many people just simply try to drown the guilt of their sin in alcohol and drugs and immorality and various hedonistic pleasures. But the cure for our guilt is the blood of Jesus Christ. We must confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For the unsaved, the only way to to have that guilt removed is to repent and to place one's faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. That's how the guilt is removed. That is how we are justified. Justified by faith in Christ alone. Not by our works. And man is trying in so many ways to wash his hands of the guilt of his sin and remains guilty before a holy God because the washing is done with the dirty water of blame shifting and redefining the terms and good works and penance and superstitions and blame shifting or the drowning or the attempt to drown out the guilt of sin with all of these other illicit ways. When God is calling for man to repent, to come unto me, as Jesus said, all ye that labor are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In a sense, that's even what Jesus is saying to Pilate. You are in turmoil. You are in stress. You are in guilt. Come to me, Pilate, and I will give you rest, the rest that you so desire, but you're not going to get if you continue in your Diabolical ways. So compromise number one was to try to release Jesus, but instead they called for Barabbas. Compromise number two, chapter 19 and verse one. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. We don't even, we can't even fathom what scourging is. It's not allowed by the Geneva Convention. I say it over and over. But Christianity changed the world. And there's only a Geneva Convention and there's only war crimes and there's only trials for war criminals because of the effect of Christianity upon the world. The Romans didn't care. Crucifixion to them was a way of punishing those who would dare to defy Rome. And they'd be a public example. But if they, if they, if they survived scourging, they would go to the cross. 
But many times it was scourging before they ever went to the cross. And scourging alone could kill a man. A scourge was a whip with leather tails at the tip of each tail, what was called the cat of nine tails. At the tip of each of those leather tails was bone or metal or glass. So as that whip, if we take that prisoner and we put them and we tie their hands up with their back exposed and they are whipped from behind, that whip would come around and it would tear the flesh as it came back across. Ripping off skin, sometimes even exposing the organs. My point isn't to give some sort of medical or some detailed description to cause us to weep today. I don't want there to be some sort of false repentance because of the sorrow and the sympathy with our Savior. Believe me, we need to understand the violent nature of our Savior's death. But when a movie is published 10, 15, 20 years ago that just simply shocks us with the violence of his death and gives us no meaning no real purpose, no real evangelistic message of the gospel and the fact that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sin, then that movie did not start the revival that everybody was claiming it would start and that we needed to go to the movie theater and watch this movie in order for us to really experience Christianity, for us to really come to face with our Savior and to be saved. Well, that movie did not start a revival that swept the land and brought us in droves to Christ. I can get into another criticism of that movie. My point isn't that you can't watch something like that. I don't recommend it, okay? But I'm not saying you're some devilish sinner if you went and watched that or if you have that. And that's not my point. My point isn't to say that the violent nature of his death and the sympathy that is drawn out of us for his death does not save us. We have to come to grips with the fact that our sin is what put him there. It is our sin that is lashing Jesus Christ. We have to come to grips with the fact that I cannot save myself, and it's only by Christ and Christ alone, not by works of righteousness which we have done. But this scourging was brutal, and it was inhumane, it was evil. This is an innocent man. This is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And he's being whipped like a criminal of the worst kind that some criminals would not even survive. Some say that there were prisoners who would not only die from the beatings, but if they didn't die, they would be lacerated so badly they would almost be beyond recognition. And Isaiah 53 even makes reference to Christ's visage being marred. The scourging is even a fulfillment of prophecy. If that weren't bad enough, they then take a purple robe and put it on his blood-soaked body. Mocking him. Purple was a robe of royalty, a color of royalty. It was done in mocking fashion. The soldiers took crowns, a crown of thorns and they placed it on his head. And we understand those thorns were probably inches long. 
And when they put that crown on of thorns, they would shove it down into his head so that it would cause more puncture wounds and bleeding. They slapped him. They mocked him. We go down in verse number two, and the soldiers plated a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him with their hands. Now imagine for a moment, in, American, in the American justice system, in a trial, we have, set, we have had some of the worst criminals imaginable put on trial here in America. And they are, and I won't even describe some of the things that they have done. You know what I'm talking about. And what do they do? What do they, what do, what do, they do with those prisoners, with the, the equal justice of the law? They bring them in, and they, they, they can come from the streets with all kinds of just piercings and tattoos and all the other things that might go with that. But they show up at the trial in what? A three-piece suit. Cleaned up, freshened up, because they want to make a, an appearance. They want to look a certain way. That's what we're used to in America. Even the worst criminals are given at least some dignity. And there is some justice in the system that allows for them to come. Even though they may have been dragged from the dregs of the streets, they're brought in and they're treated humanely, decently. And they are given lawyers who defend them, who argue the law. Jesus is being brought in. And he's mocked and he's ridiculed. He's treated unjustly, false witnesses, kangaroo court kind of stuff. And then he is scourged and slapped and mockingly had a robe put on him and a crown of thorns. And they scream at him with mocking words, Hail, King of the Jews. We say that would never happen in America. I don't know. I hope it doesn't. I hope it doesn't. I hope our justice system is held enough with integrity that there, there won't come a day where prisoners are treated like Christ was. But again, it reminds us of the injustice. No person has ever been treated the way our Savior was, Jesus Christ. Yet he was completely innocent. and He was the God-man. And we go down and we come to verse number Four and five. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, verse five, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. In this second compromise, the first compromise, release Jesus. Surely you don't want Barabbas. His second compromise now is, I'll scourge him. And surely the, the sight of this bloodied prisoner, surely the sight of this, this, this violent, stricken man, surely that will cause the people to back off and to not desire his death. Surely they will have had enough. As he brings Jesus out, he doesn't refer to him this time as king of the Jews. That had already been said by the soldiers. Now he brings Jesus out and he says, behold the man. Remember, he's in the praetorium. He brings him out so the crowd can see. And 
they look at Jesus and where you would think that there would be some sympathy where you think that there would be some empathy, you would think, well, he's, he's had enough. Surely this is enough. With the, I know the robe was on, so some of the wounds were not exposed, visible. But what do we read in verse number 6? When the chief priests, therefore, and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him. For I find no fault in him. It's unbelievable. I find no fault in him. Do we understand? Does that comprehend? He says it again. He has already said it once. And then he says it again there at verse number six. I find no fault in him. But still, go ahead and crucify him. The contradiction of his statement. It's, it's, it's hard to imagine. Though he declares Christ's, innocent, Christ's innocence, he offers Jesus back to the Jews for him to be put to death. And then we come to verse number 7. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. So here is Pilate bringing Jesus out, the chief priests the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the crowd, no doubt, in a frenzy. Verse 7, the Jews, which often referred to the religious leaders, we have a law, and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. What are they bringing up again? They're bringing up this false accusation of blasphemy. They're bringing up this trumped-up charge that they had already brought up before when he first met with Annas and Caiaphas before the Sanhedrin. They're bringing this back up again. He is guilty of blasphemy. Put your stamp of approval on this crucifixion. We want him dead. And Pilate is struggling. He hears them cry out, Hail, King of the Jews. He hears them say, This is the man who has blasphemed God and referring to himself as the Son of God. In verse number 8, when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid. This shook Pilate down to his very core. He's hearing this statement again of blasphemy. He's heard this accusation before, but with all that has gone on now, Pilate is in turmoil in his heart, in his mind. Maybe it was all the superstitions of his Roman lifestyle and the polytheistic worldview. Maybe there was at least a tinge of genuine conviction. But Pilate, one last time, he goes back into the judgment hall in verse 9, went again into the judgment hall and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? Whence art thou? One more time, he comes back and he questions Jesus. And it's as if he is saying, Jesus, I have already given orders. I'm going to send you to the crucifixion. Do you have one last thing to say for yourself before you are punished, before you experience this capital punishment? There's a reservation, it seems, in Pilate's heart. But he is following through 
with the diabolical motivations of his own heart, yet he asked Jesus one more time, whence art thou, where are you from? Is ultimately what he's saying. And Jesus gave him no answer. We're not going to sing this hymn, but 485 in our hymnals is a question that we ask in closing today. 485. Ron Hamilton, who recently went to be with his Savior, he asks this important question in this great hymn. What will you do with Jesus? Jesus gave him no answer at that point. There was nothing for Jesus to say, and before, a sheep, like a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened it not his mouth. In other words, Jesus only spoke when it was necessary, and he always spoke the right words in calmness. He spoke the truth in love when he did speak. This was not a time to answer. But the question remains. As Pilate is in consternation, it's a question for the unsaved. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, what will you do with Jesus? Will you continue like Pilate in your rebellious ways, doing your own thing, deciding truth for yourself? Or will you take the only true way of escape and repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in Christ? But if you're a believer, maybe we need to think these thoughts from these words in 485. What will you do with Jesus, he who redeemed your soul? What will you do with Jesus, he who can make you whole, sovereign of all the ages, savior of Calvary? What will you do with Jesus? He longs to set you free. What will you do with Jesus, he who became your sin? What will you do with Jesus, he who can cleanse within? Giver of life eternal, victor of hell's domain, what will you do with Jesus? Gladly he bore your pain. What will you do with Jesus, stanza number three says, conquering Lord of all. What will you do with Jesus? Come while you hear his call. Follow his steps to Calvary. Humbly before him bow. What will you do with Jesus? Call on his mercy now. Maybe we as believers need to call on his mercy. In order to get something right, to get back on the right track, to start living for God and serving him once again, and being faithful, what will we do with Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, this truth rings in our ears this morning. As we come to this closing hymn, Lord, may the Holy Spirit continue to do His work in our hearts. Pilate was giving orders that would condemn an innocent man, the God-man, our Savior Jesus Christ, to death. He asks a question, Lord, that is important. That, Lord, each of us needs to consider. And, Lord, the question that comes to mind in return is, what am I going to do with Jesus this morning? Lord, I pray that you will do your work in our hearts. If there's someone here today who's unsaved, may today be the day of their salvation. May they turn from their sin and turn to you in saving faith. Lord, if there's some believer here who's struggling and they know that you are calling them to a life of obedience, a life of faithfulness, of love for you, of service for you, but they keep doing their own thing, going their own way, and trying to manage life on their own terms. But Lord, may today be the day they submit to you 
And Lord, they will find that you are the greatest master, the most loving, the most caring, the most merciful and gracious master. And that the master of sin is not a good master, but a cruel master, a cruel taskmaster, Lord. And Lord, may us as believers turn from our sin and Lord, be obedient and faithful to you and love you more and serve you better. And we pray this in Jesus' name.